verses 14 and 17. I preached from this text two weeks ago in a message I entitled, The Power of the Gospel. It's a tremendously important passage. And today, um, as we continue in our opening year series called The New Hope Vision, where we talk about the most fundamental the most fundamental um, convictions that we hold as our church and how we build our church on the gospel. Um, There's a very important passage and an especially important uh, teaching of, of how to understand the importance of the gospel in a message today that I have entitled The Problem of Human Righteousness. So, Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. This is the Word of God. This is Paul speaking. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm going to talk about this important subject. Um, well, actually, let me give you a little quick background why I chose this text. Um, there's a fellow named Martin Luther. You might have heard of him. And um, he was a monk. He was a monk in the 16th century, which is 1500s. Right? And he mightily sought to try to obey the commandments. And he realized that no matter how hard he tried, he would in one way or another fall short. And at the time, um, there was, there's only one church, there are no denominations, there was only one church and they called themselves the Holy Catholic Church. <laughs> and uh, Catholic meaning throughout the whole world. And there was a practice that if you were falling short in, in, in obeying God's God's commands and God's will, that you would have to do penance. And Martin Luther took that very seriously. And there are legendary stories of how he would um, kneel on stairs in the church and go up and say prayers. There would be many, many stairs, and at each step <laughs> he would kneel because he knew how far low before the law he was, and he felt that very much he could sense this deep holiness of God and how, how much he fell short. And one day he was reading the, through the scriptures and he read this passage. <laughs> and so two weeks ago I emphasized this portion of scripture, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's the portion I preached on, especially two weeks ago. But the part that really changed Martin Luther's life, and this 
quite frankly, change the world, this verse, this one verse, because it unlocks something that, that was hidden. It unlocks something that Luther didn't quite understand. And quite frankly, it wasn't very well taught in the church of his time in the 16th century. And that's this portion. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So right here in this verse, this verse, <laughs> this verse broke open everything for him. And he realized that it is not in the righteousness that I can do. But there's something that has been done for me through the gospel, that the gospel proclaims, that I must believe my faith. And that is what launched the Protestant Reformation, and it's still changing the world today. That is an incredible, powerful thing, and, um, and we must go back to that. We must constantly go back to that, that salvation, that the very power of God comes through righteousness from his righteousness, not ours. And that's what I'm going to talk about today in three parts. Um, part one, the failure of religious righteousness. Part two, the failure of secular righteousness. Hmm. There's a lot of people who don't understand that. Today, there's a lot of people who just think, so there's a lot of people today who think, hey, you know what, that religion stuff, I'm glad it works for you. And people pride themselves today on thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a generally good person, and we're all just trying to find our own way. And some people find it through a religion, but I'm going to find it my own way. And really, that is the pathway of secular righteousness, and that doesn't work either. And part three, really what we need is a different kind of righteousness, and that is a righteousness from God. Okay? A righteousness of God, as this passage speaks of. Um, part one, the failure of religious righteousness. Um, look, um, there's a number of different ways I, I, I can talk about this. Um, a lot of people talk, think that what Christianity is about is what you really need is to get in the church and just get a lot of religion. <laughs> and what religion means is, is trying to do all the stuff that makes us good people. Now let me just step back for a second. Right? There's, a, there is, there's an idea today that... Um, that the people who are in the church, they're trying to make themselves good people and be accepted by God as good people. And then there's the edifice of the church, the church and all its doctrines and all its teachings and all its practices. And if you do this, then you follow that religion. <laughs> and if you follow that religion, then you'll be a good person. And then the man upstairs the one we call God, God will deem you good enough for him. And then, not only will, he, will you get to go to heaven after you die, but then he'll do good things for you. <laughs> Lots of good things will happen in your life because you are a righteous person according to the standards of that religion. That's, that's the view of how a lot of people think uh, religious righteousness works. But let me, let me just back up for a second. Before we even talk about any specific religion, 
And so this is a very common view in, in our culture today. People think that the Christians have their whole ways of being re- uh, uh, religious. And then their religious form of righteousness, that is what's going to, quote, unquote, save them. Right? And then there's the, the, the Muslims, they have their way of doing it. The Buddhists have their way of doing it. And what I want to point forward to you today in part two of my message is, by the way, um, is that there's a secular way of doing it too, which is just another alternative religious pathway. It's kind of strange to call secular religious, but it is, okay? But, bef- but, but before we even talk about any specific religion, there is a more fundamental problem of what it just means to be a human being. The more fundamental problem is righteousness itself. <laughs> righteousness is a human problem. It's a universal problem. Because every single person, and I don't care who you are, no matter what religion you say, what culture you are a part of, and you can just try this. You can go to any culture in the world. A lot, of, a lot of people think, oh, religion, that's just a cultural thing. And so if you're in America, the dominant religion is Christianity, and so that, that's the one that, you know, that Americans wrestle with. And, and if you're in, in an Arab country, that's going to be Islam. And if you're in an Asian country, it might be Hinduism or it might be Buddhism. And throughout history, particularly one religion or another tends to kind of arise into dominance to shape the culture. But the fact is, every single human being, where even if you don't think you're religious at all, you don't adhere to any particular religion, you wrestle with the problem of what the Bible calls righteousness. Except we don't use that word today. We just use a little bit more generic language. We say things about, like, we just are looking for someone to be a good person. Are you a good person? Nobody wants to be considered a bad person. And it's really interesting today. There's lots of people today who think, well, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's a, they don't believe in the laws and the standards and the commands that Christianity, the law of God as Christianity taught through the Bible, but they agree with some don't agree with others. And so there's lots of people who think, well, I can lie about this, this, and that. Those are kind of white lies. And, you know, I'm going to cut some corner on my taxes. And I've slept with this person and that person. And, and I wasn't too great in this relationship or that relationship. But I'm generally a good person. <laughs> that is a really common notion today. If you go around most people today, a lot of, people, a lot of us today think that if you have generally good intent... And you don't malicious, you're, you're not a racist. You're not actually trying, you never murdered anybody. You didn't s- s- steal. You never molested any children. I mean, I mean you didn't do the, the really awful, horrible things that nobody, I mean, in our, in our culture, we all agree of that are evil and wrong. I mean, we all know those are wrong. If, but... If, but all those are in one way or another. What we've done, all we've just done is we've just lowered the bar on righteousness. <laughs> That's really all that we've done. Okay. And, and all that we've done is just say, well, don't be a racist. <laughs> don't do bad things to kids. And um, you should generally try to be a good parent. It's very interesting. We're incredibly legalistic. And our standard of good parenting is very high in our culture. Right? although we're incredibly hypocritical about it at the same time. And, but what there is, is we'll never get away from the issue of righteousness. So I'm a good person. 
That's one way of putting it. Um, there's other ways of putting it. Um, lots of people today say, I'm looking and longing for authenticity. It's really interesting. Um, I've, I've thought about that word when I hear a lot of, a lot of young people love to use that word, authenticity. What, do they, do you, if you hang out with a person and you're just... And you just let all your anger come out. I'm authentically angry. <laughs> you know, if I'm really honest with you, I, I really think your wife is just, the, uh, is, just the, is just the hottest person I've ever really met. And really, if I'm really authentic with you, I just have fantasies about her at night. <laughs> is that uh, the authenticity? We, really, we don't really want real authenticity all the way down. What we really want is we want people to come out and say, those things are messed up inside of me. We want a community and a set of people to admit that deep down that there is a problem inside too. Not just outside. That you can't just fake righteousness. And really, when I hear young people talk about authenticity, you know what they're saying? They don't know that they're saying this, but they're saying I want real righteousness, the kind of righteousness which is honest enough to wrestle with the sin and the chaos and the anger and the sadness and the disappointment and the fears. And if someone is truly loving and merciful and kind, I know it's real. (laughs) It's not just fake activity on the outside. I know it's real. That's righteousness. And I won't spend too much time in the religious righteousness, um, but most people are already in our culture, and this war, I absolutely agree. Most people in our culture think that if you just go do all the strictures of the religion, all the stuff that the religion tells you to do, let's just, you know, we'll just say Christianity, that that's just not good enough. <laughs> because when they hang out with people they are, who are Christian, and who love, who, who, who say, who wear the badge of honor, who say, I'm a Christian, when they hang out with those people, they say, I don't seem all that special or different in you. They don't seem very authentic to me. In fact, a lot of the people that seem to go to church seem to be hypocritical. Right? Um, uh, let me say this. The Bible would agree with you, if that's what you think. The Bible would agree with you that if there's a religion called Christianity, and if it really what it teaches you is you just need to follow all the rules and do all the practices and do all the religious rites, the standing up and getting down and having the money and saying the prayers and believing the right things and going to the certain kind of buildings and and then having all that pious feelings, that that is going to be enough to turn us into the kind of people that we long to be righteous, then that's not good enough. And the Bible absolutely agrees with you. It is not good enough. And, there, and there's so many different ways. I mean, I'll, let me just point out just a couple. Um, so now let me just speak to people who are in the church. Okay, so... If you are a person, you believe in Jesus, you say, I belong to the church. And I seek him. And I love him. 
You know what it's like that if you just try to just do all the stuff, okay, I'm going to, you know, if you have ever gone to a place where you know you're failing, <laughs> you should try the thing that Martin Luther ever did to do. Okay, if I, if I am not good enough, there's this part of my life where I'm sinning, <laughs> then what I need to do is I need to make up for it. I need to do penance. You ever try to do that? There's a lot of people in the church who feel like if I do more, 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 if I do more things for the church, if I continue, oh, the real problem is I haven't been trying hard enough and I need to work hard at that particular commandment or that particular aspect of my spiritual. I just need more discipline and I need to work harder at it. And if you just do that, then, then maybe this, this sense of guilt and shame and this weakness will finally wash away. And so you run, 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 and you know what? And at first, maybe you feel like, okay, okay. But actually, it isn't. It doesn't, does it? Deep down, you know, it just makes you weary. It'll make you tired. That's, that's one problem. The problem of the fact that guilt is a huge problem. <laughs> that the law, and the more that you internalize the law. So this is, this is the real problem in our culture. All the people who know that the law is true and then try to seek it, if you just do it on your own power, on a righteousness of your own making, you'll know you'll fall short and the law will condemn you. But then all the people who don't believe in the law just say, oh, I don't need to believe in the law. All that they do is they just weaken standards of human righteousness and then they go around telling people, I'm a basically good person. But as long as our culture agrees that you can just lower the standards... But actually, everybody in our culture hates that too. That's why we long for authenticity because the standards of goodness in our culture is so low that we're miserable people because all around us, we don't trust other people around us because we don't think they're very good people. And deep down, we don't even like ourselves because we don't think we're very good people. That's what's happening in our culture. It's a huge incident. It's why there is depression and unhappiness, and disappointment, and fears, because they're just rampant in our culture. But that's the other downside, so there's really no way around it. But let me give you one other way in which religious righteousness fails. Because if the, other, if the person can fulfill all the rules, so one way is, I'm not holding up to all the rules, and there are high standards, and I'm not making it. Then you feel condemned inside of your own heart. But if you can do it, let's say you're the person you think, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm reading the Bible every day, and I'm, I don't even just come to church. I come really early. I come to their, the prayer services, and I go to every Bible study and everything. And I do all that stuff, and I tithe. I do, I'm more than tithe. And I never tell a lie, and I'm super kind and generous, and I'm really scrupulous to make sure I do all of that stuff. The real problem is other people aren't trying hard enough. What does that produce? It produces pride. It produces a set of people that looks down upon other people. It produces a set of people that set themselves apart as above everybody else. And, and it doesn't make, and they're not joyful. Are they joyful? Oftentimes they're not. And are they, 
Are they humble? Are they open? <laughs> Oftentimes, are they people that are really open about their fears? Because no matter how hard you try to follow the rules, guess what? There are fears. And then there's still failure. And there's still places where it's not working out inside. Will they let, that, let you into that? But oftentimes it's not. They'll just only show you, I'm making it. How come you're not? Why don't you try harder and come do this with me? And you'll do better like me. And we can feel this, that there's a pride and a, a shut off, a sense of hypocrisy. And when, especially young people today, say, I'm looking for authenticity, when they meet folks like that, they don't think that's it. And I think they're right. The problem of religious righteousness. And let me say this to you. No matter what religion, insofar as it's practiced like a religion, and what I want to say to you today is Christianity in this way is not a religion. It's not. There are people who practice Christianity like it's a set of rights. It's, a, it's largely a series of do's and don'ts. And if you do them right, the big man upstairs will be nice to you. But every other viewpoint, as long as, no matter what, no matter what religion, if that is the way we're going to try to solve the deep problem of righteousness through religion, through religious do's and don'ts, of our righteousness that we have to do and achieve, it's not going to work. We're not going to have the type of beautiful people that we long for in our lives and in our society. Part two, the failure of secular righteousness. Look, um, there's a lot of detached people in our society. Um, it, it's interesting. They, they, uh, they know that somehow they need something more. And so this is partly why Paul says Jews seek signs. <laughs> Because what they want is God to give you a sign that I approve of you. Okay? Because they know it's like the, the most important person in the world is God. And then what God longs for you from his revealed word and then by seeking him through you know, our faith. But, but Greeks, and Greeks are the people who are, and back then, all the people who saw themselves as Greek in the Bible were what today we would call a relativist. Today we might call a secular person. Because what is a secular person or a relativist? It's a person who's detached. I don't believe in any one particular vision of God. There's some generic person God out there. I think. Maybe. Maybe. And I'm not even sure about that. But I don't know if you can believe in any one particular per take on it. And nobody's got it all right. And now we're just going to just try to muddle through and be good people. And you know all that is? That is a secular version of seeking righteousness. That's all it is. And what there is is the Bible says Greeks seek wisdom. So what there is is, well, we're just going to try to be wise. So you know how our culture does it? We're going to just take piecemeal. We're going to treat all the religions out there sort of like like, a, like a, a salad bar. <laughs> and we'll take a little piece from Christianity here, and we'll take a little something from New Ageism, and if something from Buddhism sounds worthwhile, that's good. 
Um, has, have any of you guys ever gone to uh, there, a restaurant around here in, 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 um, uh, in North San Jose called Pyology? You ever been, been, been to Pyology? The place is really good, right? The thing that I find really fascinating about Pyology, if you go to Pyology, on their wall, they have all these cool quotes. And really, all they, have, they have all these quotes on the walls from famous people. Einstein. They have religious quotes. Uh, um, some Buddhist, uh, from some certain religious figures. But really what they have is they've kind of gathered all the religious from all the smart people and all the so-called good people. And this, and if we just take in some of these things, then we can live the good life and eat this nice pizza. <laughs> and we will be good people. And, um, but the laws, the laws of God, things like repentance and forgiveness and atonement, uh, well, I don't know about that. None of that's on the wall. Where we have to ask for forgiveness, guilt. It's like, oh, no, no, don't talk about that stuff. It's none of that's on the wall. You know what that is? That's our way of being Greeks, Greek-seeking wisdom. There it is on the walls. But it's secular wisdom. It's a secular form of righteousness. Um, there's something going on in our culture, and this is really breaking us. You don't think so? There's a lot of people today, as long as you have money, and if you've got a pretty good education, and if you happen to have just enough discipline in your life to get on with life, or if you just happen to have certain advantages, you were pretty enough, you were handsome enough, athletic enough, that you can make some money, some people admire you, people want to go to bed with you, 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 you seem to be marryable, or at least somebody thinks you might want to be, and you have enough money to go to a place like Pyology and eat really the make-it-your-own-pizza. And, and you can read those things on the walls and you're like, hey, well, that's good. Oh, that's good. But, but things like um, commitment, sacrifice, like marriage. I mean, we, we're living in a culture that doesn't even know if we even need marriage. We can certainly do, redefine marriage. We could just live with our girlfriend or nowadays, you can choose if it's going to be a girlfriend or a boyfriend, as long as you're a good person. As <laughs> long as you read a little Buddha on the wall. Uh, uh, you can even take in a quote from Jesus. As long as we treat Jesus as a, just a wise man, not a savior. <laughs> and, then, and then we'll just, and we'll just make up relationships as we go, and we'll just muddle along. And we'll just be good people. We're actually, this is deeply not working. If you happen to grow up in a place and your parents did not make enough money, or your parents did not stay together, or you grew up in a neighborhood that was a little more dangerous, or one or both of your parents had a drug problem or an alcohol problem, or were depressed, they broke up, then you grew up in this kind of a chaos. You grew up in a neighborhood maybe where the school wasn't very good, or even if the school was good, your heart life or home life was poor. Your daddy wasn't too nice, or your mom was a little addicted. 
And certain kinds of things are on the TV. And, um, and, and you didn't think you were going to grow up and have like a really nice life. Your parents didn't have a really nice life. The people in your neighborhood don't have a really nice life. Everywhere around you, there's destruction. If that's all around, I think if you go outside of neighborhoods that are a little more prosperous and rich and don't have nice little restaurants like Pyology, it's, this secular righteousness is really breaking people apart. Um, I talked about this. When I first came to this church six years ago, I talked about this article, and I haven't mentioned it since then, but I thought for this issue of secular righteousness, I, I, I wanted to go to it. Now, if you weren't here six years ago, you didn't know, so this is cool. It'll be new for you, <laughs> um, which is most of you. Right? But there's an article that I read, um, brilliant article, called Eminem is Right. Written by a woman named Mary Aberstadt. Eminem. This woman named Mary Aberstadt, who's one of the smart people in our culture, um, she's actually a fellow. She's a fellow at the Hoover Institute, which is a think tank right here at Stanford University. And so this think tank tends to like to support the intellectual work of certain, well, very smart people that they think is going to, whose writings and research is going to contribute to the building of a stronger society. And the Hoover Institute supports the work of Mary Haberstadt. And they have a journal called um, Policy Review. You can go find this up. You can just Google, Eminem is right, and it'll come up right away. And you know It's right there on the Hoover Institute journal, um, uh, Policy Review. And she wrote an article called Eminem is Right. And what she did was she said, I wanted to go listen to today's music. There's a lot of parents who hate today's music, the music that young people like. And by the way, she's not talking about like top 40 stuff. She's talking about um, uh, the really raunchy, hard uh, rap or hip hop. (laughs) The kind of stuff that's very misogynistic and often full of violence and sometimes just straight racism that goes to the deep taboos. There are artists in our culture that people on the right, so all the Republicans can't stand them, and the people on the left, all the Democrats can't stand them. Eminem is one of them. I mean, Eminem just offends everybody. (laughs) He offends everybody. I mean, he is sexist. He's misogynistic. He says stuff about women, which just drives the people who are feminists on the left nuts. They can't, they hate him, right? And then, of course, he talks about sex and stuff like that that drives people on the right nuts. They can't, they hate him. So it's probably one of the reasons why he's, uh, he's popular is because he's maximally offensive <laughs> to all the, all the authorities in our culture, right? And, of course, there's always that, young people, like going to the thing that's shocking to the parents. But what Mary Eberstadt wanted to do was, we already know, um, we already know the, the ways that they offend <laughs> the authorities, the, the so-called righteous people in our culture, the good people, whether they're the left-wing version or the right-wing version. What she said is, um, what is it about today? Is this way she put it? What is nonetheless? This is not my focus. I would like to turn that logic and influence upside down and ask this question: 
What is it about today's music, violent and disgusting though it may be, that resonates with so many American kids? Why do they like this? Think about this. There's not a little small number of kids. And by the way, this was written in 2004, so the people who like this music today, they're not kids. <laughs> so the 15-year-old who liked this music, when this article was written in 2004, by the way, they're not 15 years old anymore, they're like 26, 27 years old, you're hiring them into your companies. The person that likes this music is the backbone of our economy today. I want you to just understand that. And so this deep thing that's, that's, that's expressed through the music, so when some, there's a powerful piece of music, that, and, it's, and there's an, uh, a point, the culture is telling us something. And that's what Mary Aberstadt said. Let's, let's learn something. What is it? What does it tell us about them? And what she found out, she, so she started listening to a lot of this music. So can you just imagine this, this, uh, this woman who, um, she has a degree from Cornell. I mean, she's an Ivy League type of person. She's supported by Stanford's Hoover Institute. She's sitting around listening to, <laughs> to all this hard and hitting music. And she said, Today's music is that of, a lot of it talks about abandonment. It's compulsive insistence on the damage wrought by broken homes. And so she listened to groups like, I don't know if any, I don't know these, most of these groups, guys, okay, but maybe some of you do. And like I said, this is, you know, even 10, 12 years ago, so they're not even the hottest groups anymore. But I'll bet today, if we go look around, we'll just find the same equivalent. Uh, Papa Roach, Everclear, Blink-182, Good Charlotte, uh, Pearl Jam, I know them, <laughs> okay? I mean, like, come on, all right. Uh, Nirvana, Nirvana's a little old. Uh, um, I listened to them in college. Nirvana um, has the sound of sheer alienation. It's like a really depressed guy. Kurt Cobain is elite. That guy is depressed. And, 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 and he was so depressed, he ended up blowing his head off with a shotgun. Right? Um, that was really popular music. It really resonated. Millions <laughs> and billions of young people. And that was in the early 90s. So all those people are now in their 40s. <laughs> when I was in college, anyway. So when I was in college, those people who like Nirvana now are in their 40s. They're the backbone of our culture. Secular righteousness. Um, a lot of this music says that is about kids crying out because they're the children of divorce. So we can't do. We don't know how to do commitment. Sacrifice. It's in one way or another, oh, I'm a good person. We'll just lower, but we can just lower the standards on what a good person is. But you know what? Somebody pays. And right now in our culture, young people are paying. They were paying 20 years ago and 30 years ago, and they're still paying. The reason why there's so much, uh, why today, the, the person who's in their 20s don't take, a, well, maybe they do, maybe in their teens. But the person who felt this way in their 20s, but if they make some money in their 30s and 40s, then they take antidepressants. Then they go to therapists. Why the need for therapists and antidepressants is so high? It's stuff like this. Um, let, let me just read you a, a quote from 
I mean, it's a great article, long article, but worth reading. Um, so this is a quote. Uh, uh, he, he, she, she talks, she reads some of the, uh, oh gosh, which band is this, all right? This is uh, Shaddix of Papa Roach, who wrote, the F- uh, who wrote a song called Broken Home. He, <clears throat> he's become used to fans coming up and telling him over and over, you know that song Broken Home? That's my effing life. <laughs> the kids come up to him. It's, it's a bit sad that that's true, you know. Another guy says, you should see some people who I meet after shows. So he writes lyrics about moms who are absent, or dad, I wish you would come back. These are in the lyrics. And then they say, after the show, they break down weeping, and they're like, I went through the same exact thing. Sometimes it's terrifying how much they can relate to my lyrics. And Shaw's conclusion is an interesting one, that this emphasis in the current music is on abandoned children represents an unusually loaded form of teenage rebellion. This is the sound of one generation reproaching another, only this time it's the scorned, world-weary children telling off their narcissistic, irresponsible parents. Divorce could be Rock's ideal subject matter. These are songs about the chasm in understanding between parents who routinely don't comprehend the grief their children are feeling and children who don't know why their parents have torn up their world. Look, I'm not trying to make anybody feel really bad about divorce. But even then, with all our secular righteousness, are we that much better with dealing with divorce? Dealing with marriage? Do we know how to do this? How to do marriage and family? I would say to you, the secular wisdom and righteousness is deeply, deeply lacking there. It's just destroying people, if not ourselves, around us. Um, let me just share with you this quote. This is from Eddie Vedder of, of, um, of Pearl, Pearl Jam. This is back in 1994, 20 years ago. And he sings songs like this too. And in an interview that focused on the death of Kurt Cobain, he knew Kurt Cobain. I mean, they're in that Seattle grunge rock sound together, right? And Seattle was the scene of all this grunge rock where all this stuff came out. Vedder noted with particular insight, right? we, and he's talking about that as Vedder and Cobain, we have similar backgrounds. Yeah, things that happen with our families and, S-H-I-T, I think that's something that comes out in what we wrote in our songs, Definitely. But what makes it more similar is the way people responded to what we wrote and sang about. The intense identification. And I think it was maybe a shock to both of us that so many people were going through the same things. I mean, they understood so completely what we were talking about. Then all of a sudden, there's all these other people who connect with them, and you're suddenly the spokesman for an effing generation! (laughs) 
Can you imagine that? So this is what he's saying after he's being interviewed, after his friend Kurt Cobain shot himself and shocked the nation when Kurt Cobain was on top of the rock and roll world. When our first record came out, I was shocked how many people related to some of that stuff. That kind, the kind of letters that got through to me about those songs, some of them were just frightening. Think about it, man, he says. And a generation that would pick Kurt or me as its spokesman, that must be a pretty effed up generation. Don't you think? Let me tell you something. That is a generation dominated by the wisdom of secular righteousness. And it is ripping people apart, especially our young people. And there's a lot of people in their 30s and 40s and maybe even 50s today, they have been torn apart, but what they did over time was they went to a therapist or they went through a whole series of either addictions, either alcohol or some other, and they began to numb themselves. And now they just kind of piece their life together and they're just kind of muddling along today in their 30s and 40s. But really, the reason they're such hurting people, and maybe that's some of us, maybe that's some of you, maybe it's us. And they're right here in the church. Because we have been playing the playbook of us having to form our own righteousness and trying to be good good people, good enough people. And it's not working. It's so not working. I'm going to go to the last part of my message. It says right here, we must discover this thing that Martin Luther discovered. He discovered it right here. And when he discovered it, he knew that God, the Holy Spirit, gave it to him. These words, God, illuminated, that's what theologians call it, illuminate, to make light what was dim and dark. That there is a righteousness, for in the gospel, that's what it says, in it, the gospel, in the gospel is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And here's what the gospel teaches. That there wasn't a righteousness here on this earth. If you go to Romans chapter 3, it says, there's none righteous, no, not even one. (laughs) All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of the righteousness of God. There's a place in the Old Testament that says, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And you know that word filthy rags? Our righteousness is as used, it's, it's a really euphemistic term. Because if you get under the Hebrew, really what it says, our righteousness is as used menstrual cloth. Our righteousness, it's a really gross image. Our righteousness is like a used tampon. That is a gross image. That's the best that we can do. The best that we can do is, 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 is filthy rags, menstrual cloth. That's the way the Bible puts it. So when God looks at us, all our efforts, it's not even, it's not even just 
it, you know, you're not just a sinner when you do the bad things. Let me say this to you. When the people say, I'm being a good person, what's wrong with you? You know what that is? The pride of our righteousness, which falls short, the Bible already sees that and says, it's not good enough. And so what did God do for this unbelievable problem, this universal problem? God sent His Son, because no human being could do it. And Son, will you go and be a person on that earth, be a human being, and through the human life, bring a righteousness which is from me, which is from us. And so he lowered himself and walked into a sin-soaked world. And he lived the life we should have lived. And he died a death we deserve to die. So then now, if you would trust in him, God's righteousness would be credited to us, would be wrapped in his righteousness. Not our righteousness, but his. That when you stand before God, you would plead, <laughs> God, I'm not asking to get into heaven because I'm good enough. Oh, oh no. Because I'm most certainly not. If it's based on me and all the ways I have tried to obey you, and I'm not, I'm not going to make it. But I plead Christ the way he has obeyed you. The righteousness which is from you, God, <laughs> that you gave us through him. That's the one I trust. That you will credit to me and that now you'll begin to pour into me by the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. If you will trust in his righteousness first, God will wrap you in that righteousness and there will be no more condemnation. And then he will come to dwell in you by his spirit and pour forth the righteousness of Christ into your life to change your heart and your mind and turn you to a whole new kind of human being. That's the gospel. And what are we doing here in the church? I'm starting this year. What does New Hope stand for? This, this proclamation, this unbelievable word, in this sin-soaked city that's falling down through religious righteousness and a lot of secular righteousness. There's a lot of failure of religious righteousness, but we're actually blind to see that actually it's the secular righteousness, which is just as much failing, if not more so. And what we need compared to both those, is actually a righteousness from God which can only come if we put our trust and our faith in the gospel and the work of Jesus for us in our place. And so, church, not by religion, not by what we can muster up and do, but as we begin to wholly trust and lean on what God has done for us through Jesus and be wrapped in his righteousness, where we can become a new and strange kind of community where genuine authenticity can start to arise and 
People may be closed off to, they don't want to hear what we have to say. But as we begin to see, you're a weird kind of people. There's something else going on here in this community. Not because we're so perfect, far from it. Actually, because we will allow our hurts and our weakness and brokenness will come out. Because we trust in a righteousness which is outside of us, which has been granted to us by grace. Let's pray. What a strange pyology culture, dear Lord. <laughs> we like sticking those things on the walls. These righteous sayings, these wise sayings it's that we think if we take enough of these in and then we just go work at it well enough, hard enough. I pray, Lord, I just want to take a moment now and pray for our city. I pray for young people. I pray for young people who, who are longing for their father to pay attention or to come back. Pray for young people, well, maybe not so young people, people in their 20s and 30s and people who would weep uncontrollably as they related to songs from Eminem or Eddie Vedder. And I pray, Lord, that somehow you would begin to open the eyes and lift the dimness and darkness that you would begin to do this in our church and through our church. That a righteousness from Christ could be upon us by faith. That we would rejoice. That we don't, it's not all based upon our performance. That when we stand before God, He will see us because the Lamb of God has washed us. His righteousness is not ours. And bit by bit, your spirit will come into our hearts and make us free. Not based upon performance, not based upon having to cover up our own shame. But we can be weak people and vulnerable people and authentically real people. And your mercy and your righteousness and your beauty and your holiness will start to shine out in us as we become a new kind of community made and reborn by the Spirit through Christ our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.